You're listening to audio from Liberty Church in the Harrisburg-Camp Hill area of Pennsylvania. For more information, please visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org. That's Liberty with an I, Harrisburg.org. Good morning. Hey, thanks for uh, being here this morning, and uh, thank you for the opportunity to preach God's Word to you. Liberty Harrisburg has a special place in my heart. Uh, there's two designations of time that happen at Liberty Harrisburg. There's the pre-COVID, right? You're like, all right, which everybody now determines what the time is like based on before COVID or after COVID. Uh, the, but at Liberty Harrisburg, it's actually before after Elks Lodge. And so um, I'm, it's great to see you guys here and to be here a number of times, but also remember back in the Elks Lodge and how you welcomed me back then as well. And so I really appreciate that. Thank you to Pastor Matt, Steve, the elders, and uh, the other pastors. We really appreciate it. I'm the lead pastor of Liberty Northeast, which is in the northeast section of Philadelphia. Uh, by God's grace, we launched that church three years ago. So you should know up front that I, am, I have been born and raised in Philadelphia. That's, I'm a Philadelphian. I'm a Philly kid. So you should know that people outside of Philly often tell me that they like me to talk slower. And I'm like, well, you need to listen faster. So just so you're aware that this dynamic may happen, there might be points in the service where you go, my sermon where you go, I wish you would talk slower. Know that I'm thinking you need to listen faster. And so that's kind of how we'll operate today. But we're going to be in Luke chapter 16 today. And we're going to look at one of Jesus' parables, which we typically have called the rich man and Lazarus. And what Jesus does, Jesus tells this parable to help us understand what it looks like to live in God's economy. So we're going to start in verse 19 of Luke chapter 16. But when we use the word economy, you and I usually think about it in terms of money, and that's definitely part of it. But young people, I don't know if you're aware of this, did you know that the Bible uses the word economy a little bit differently? That Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 1 verse 4 speaks of God's God's economy. And when he's talking about God's economy, he's referring to God's administration or God's plan. So God has a plan. He has an administration. He has an economy. And he's working this economy out through the person of Jesus. And in God's economy, he calls us to live a certain way. A certain way that's more often than not different than the way we live the rest of our lives or different than the world lives their lives. And so it changes us. And today we'll get a chance to look at how that changes how we use our money. That in God's economy, there's a certain way he would like us to use our money. And so it's oftentimes really good for the guest preacher to speak on the topic of money. (laughs) So I can say whatever I want and then leave, all right? And then Matt can clean up the rest after that. But we're going to look at generosity today. But what I want us to take away from today is that God's economy changes the way we use our resources. It reverses the way we see people and the things of this life, and it reveals what we really want. So God's economy changes the way you use your money. 
It then reverses the way that you see people that you interact with or the way you see your possessions and the things of this life and ultimately reveals what you really want from this life. And so we're talking about the resources in God's economy, the reversal of God's economy, and revelation from God's economy. So first, let's look at resources in God's economy. Look at verse 19 with me, and we'll read all the way to 21. There was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen, and who feasted sumptuously every day. And at his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus, covered with sores, who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. God's economy changes how we use our resources. So Luke chapter 16 falls within the second of three major sections in Luke's gospel. Luke's gospel can be split up in three sections. The first is like Luke chapter 1 verse 2. Sorry, this is my left. This is your left. Luke chapter 1 verse 2 talking about God's faithfulness. Then the second section is Luke chapter 3 to like the first half of chapter 19, talking about God's love for the lost. And then the second half of 19 to the end is about God's vindication of Jesus. And so we're in the vast majority of Luke's gospel, which is God's love for the lost. And this is a big theme for Luke. Luke really wants us to understand that God loves the lost and Jesus came to save the lost. And it has this focus, and the Bible makes it very clear, Luke makes it very clear that because of sin, whether you and I know it or not, everyone is born lost. We're all born enemies of God. We're all born far from Him. All of us are lost without Jesus. But there's good news because God loves the lost which is extremely good news because the lost are all that there really are. We're all lost without Jesus. And so God loves to find the lost. He loves to bring them into his family. He loves to bring them into his church. So if you're a not, you're not a Christian or you're kind of like feeling this Jesus guy out and you're just trying to figure out where you are with Jesus, you do need to know straightforwardly that you are born lost far from God, and you will remain lost in your sin until you give your life to Jesus. But if you're a follower of Jesus, which most of us probably are here today, the Bible also challenges us to take stock of our life. Take stock of your faith. Consider your own lostness that you would have without Christ and continually repent of your sin and receive his forgiveness. That all of us are lost and without Jesus will continue to be. And in this section in Luke's gospel, Jesus spends a huge chunk of the time telling parables. Parables are like political cartoons of our day. I saw a political cartoon this morning. It was, uh, there were jets flying over a bombed out building in the Ukraine, and there's two shadowy figures talking about, oh, there's poor Americans and their high gas prices. And it puts, it puts things in perspective, right? You see the, what's on the surface. You see the cartoon, but there's a deeper meaning there, a deeper challenge. And I personally was convicted because I complained about the gas prices like all the time. But I remembered what our brothers and sisters and our fellow humans are going through in the Ukraine. 
And I remembered, oh man, it, 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 attacked, it attacked here. It hit me here. And that's what Jesus does too with these parables. So this isn't a real story Jesus is telling. He's not saying, oh, you guys all know the rich man who lives over there and you guys all know Lazarus, right? Okay, cool. No, he's saying, here's a story. Listen to the surface of the story, but there's something deeper there that I want you to take away if you'll just take a moment to dissect it and think about it. And so when Jesus tells parables, there's this thing on the surface and he wants you to take the deeper meaning to think about it and dissect it. And in Luke chapter 16, Jesus tells two parables about money. The first, he tells a parable about a dishonest manager, which is, frankly, you can go back and read it some other time and then send Matt all your questions. It's one of the most confusing parables that I've ever read. But the general idea is that this man manages his master's household, and he appears to win his master's respect by acting dishonestly. I don't understand it. I haven't spent time studying it. I didn't preach on it for that reason. But the point is, that those who seek after Jesus and those are, who seek after wealth kind of stand on different sides of the spectrum. They're contrasted in that parable. And then Jesus tells this one. But why does Jesus tell two parables back to back about money? Well, in chapter 16, verse 14, it says this. If you have your Bibles, you can look at it. It says, the Pharisees who are what? Lovers of money heard all these things. And what did they do? They ridiculed him. You, do you know that no one in the Bible talks more about money than Jesus? No one in the Bible talks more about your money than Jesus. Meek and mild Jesus comes after your wallet. And he challenges how you use it. No one else does it more. And Jesus tells this parable, why? Because the Pharisees are lovers of money. So young people, the Pharisees, when we talk about Pharisees, the Pharisees were actually not this official group in Judaism. They weren't an official group. They were more of like this religious, political pressure group. And if you had to pick a group in Jesus' day that most probably aligned with Liberty Harrisburg, it probably would be the Pharisees, Right? They have a high view of scripture. They believed in angels and demons, and they believed in the resurrection, unlike the Sadducees. And they cared a lot about God's faithfulness, but they take it a step too far, actually many steps too far, by setting up these kind of crushing rules on people. These rules that are impossible to uphold, which hopefully isn't like Liberty Harrisburg. But they spent a lot of time close to Jesus. That's why they're always in the Gospels, because they're around Jesus all the time. Sometimes they listen to him. Sometimes Pharisees followed Jesus. But a lot of times they debated him. And here, what do they do? They ridiculed him. And when do they ridicule him? When he talks about money. So which should give us pause that it's often the people who are closest to Jesus who ridicule his teachings about money the most. Sometimes, you and I, who claim to be followers of Jesus, we ridicule him when he talks about money. And the ways we do that is sometimes we scoff openly at his commands. Ah, he doesn't know what he's talking about. But most times, if you're like me, 
you justify yourself and you make excuses for why you don't use your money the way Jesus tells you to use your money. And what that reveals to us, reveals about us, is that we too are lovers of money. That we love money more than we love Jesus. Because if we love Jesus more than money, we would do what he asks us to do, right? Jesus says in other places that if you love me, you'll what? Obey my commandments. So ladies, you may have heard this statement, right? That, that the fastest way to a man's heart is through his what? His stomach. But when it comes to our spiritual lives, Jesus knows the fastest way to your heart is through your wallet. See, Jesus challenges the way we use our money by telling this parable to show us how to use our money in God's economy. So he sets up this contrast of two characters. He sets up a contrast between a rich man and a poor man. And the rich man is not named. Did you catch that? He's not named. Because what Jesus wants us to do, intentionally he's doing, he wants all of us to realize that could be me. And day by day, the rich man walks past a poor man who is named. And in fact, he's the only person named in any of Jesus' parables, this man. And that's intentional. We'll come back to that in a second. And the rich man had great material wealth, right? It says he's clothed in purple and fine linen. But the poor man, what's he clothed in? Sores. The rich man, he feasted sumptuously. But the poor man feasted on crumbs. And even worse, the dogs feast on the poor man. And there's just, but there's a main contrast here is that the unnamed rich man sees himself as the rightful owner of his life. But the poor man is named Lazarus, which means God helps. God helps. And I said that's intentional. Why? Because the rich man sees himself, seeks help from himself and his resources. But Lazarus seeks help from God alone. Recently, I was driving past an intersection of Northeast Philadelphia called Grant and the Boulevard. And it's estimated that about 50,000 cars drive through that intersection every day. It's one of the busiest and actually one of the most dangerous intersections in Philadelphia. And there was a man standing in the, in the median of the intersection asking for money while, while I waited at the light. Now, normally when you're at the light, when I'm at the light, what are you, what are you normally doing? Let's just be honest. You can say it. You're on your phone, right? You're looking at your phone at the light. But when there's a homeless man asking for money, if you're like me, it's like 10 and 2, eyes on the light, foot on the accelerator, let's go, wait for it to turn green. And that's exactly what I did. And I act like I didn't even see him, just 10 and 2, I'm waiting, I'm not looking at my phone, nothing, I'm not distracted, I'm never a distracted driver, ever. And I imagine that most of the other 49 1,999 people that day treated that man the same way. They drove right past him like he didn't exist. Now, I can beat up on the rich man in this parable, but how often do I pass up opportunities like that to be generous? 
How many times on Sundays have I heard the offering time come up in the worship service and I just kept my head down and ignored it? Or how many times have I walked past a person in need like they didn't exist? Do you know Jesus says in places, he says, give and don't expect anything in return. He says, give and don't expect anything in return. He doesn't say give and then ask them how they're going to use their money, their, your, their money. Now that I've given you five bucks, how are you going to use that? He never says that. He says, give and don't expect anything in return. You see somebody in need, care for them. How many times have I done, I've heard that passage or read that passage and they just act like it didn't exist? And that person didn't exist. Or how many times have I noticed a neighbor who's struggling financially and I've never offered the help? Or I know it's a single mom working two jobs and I, I never have taken up her trash cans or I've never have asked her over for dinner with my family to show generosity to her. See, God cares how we use our resources, especially our financial resources. So in 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, Paul says that God loves a cheerful giver. That God loves a cheerful giver. The word there for love is agape. God, agape, loves a cheerful giver. Agape is this affectionate, intimate love. It's a love that's deep. It's a deep love. God has deep love for people who give cheerfully. See, everybody wants the boss's salary, but not everyone is willing to put the work in to get that salary. Many of us grew up wanting to play starting quarterback for the Philadelphia Eagles or maybe some lesser team. (laughs) But we didn't go in the backyard and make sure we get a crisp spiral through the tire swing, did we? Once I heard a story about someone who shared that in high school, Kobe Bryant would shoot hundreds of free throws for hours every day in the summer. He would shoot free throws for an hour, work out for an hour, shoot free throws for an hour, work out for an hour, shoot free throws for an hour. So while the rest of his friends are at the beach, where's Kobe? In the gym. And what's he doing? He's not doing like the under the leg dunk thing he did in the slam dunk contest. He's shooting free throws. He's doing the basics because Kobe knew everybody knows who's ever accomplished anything. To reach your goal, you have to be willing to do the basics first. And what God's trying to show us, what Jesus is trying to show us, that we can't expect to go deeper with God. We can't expect this intimate, deep, agape love from God if we aren't willing to do the basics for God. See, God asks us to give sacrificially and cheerfully. In the Old Testament, they would say, give about like 10%, but it's, and truthfully, scholars, we've kind of gone through this. We, I'm not a scholar. But scholars have gone through this, and actually it's closer to like 18 to 20% of your income was given to God. 18 to 20%. But let's just stay with the 10% rule. In the New Testament, all the New Testament says is be generous. God loves a cheerful giver. Be generous. So what it's trying to do is say, hey, Give of your finances until it pinches, until it hurts a little bit. And you know what? Do it with a good attitude. Some people give a lot with a bad attitude. Some people give very little with a good attitude. He says, do both. Good attitude and give until it pinches. That's the basics. So Tim Keller is a pastor in New York. He's a retired pastor in New York. He says that where in the Old Testament, 10% was the ceiling. In the New Testament, 10% becomes the floor. 
But many of us, what we do is we ignore the basics about what God says in terms of gen- about generosity. And then we wonder why our relationship with God is so basic. See, the verse before 2 Corinthians 9, 7, it says, if we sow sparingly, we'll reap sparingly. Well, Paul's using this language of harvesting. He's saying, when you sow sparingly, when you're not generous with your resources, you, what happens is you miss out on seeing what it's like to be one who God helps, like Lazarus. So you miss out on this deep, intimate, affectionate love from God that he wants to show you. And so you forfeit this front row seat to watch God come through for you and use your finances to, as Ross Lester says, blow big holes in the gates of hell. You forfeit that chance because your giving has this kingdom spiritual significance. But ultimately, Jesus wants you to be generous. Jesus wants me to be generous for our own freedom. Because when we're generous with our resources, our hearts are freed from the fear of not having enough. And we learn that God helps, that God is enough. And so it's the resources in God's economy, but look at the reversal of God's economy, starting in verse 22. So the poor man died, and he was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. God's economy reverses the way we see people and things in this life. Life after death was something that was revealed to God's people over time. Some things in the Bible revealed right off the bat. Life after death was kind of this thing that was revealed over time, progressively. And so we don't have a ton of time to go over this, but at that time, the time of Jesus, the people of God were at a point where they understood that after you die, you go to the place of the dead. Which is why in the creed you say he descended to the dead. The place of the dead. So Michael Emerson, he writes this book called He Descended to the Dead, about Jesus' descent. And he has this great chart and this great picture that um, might be on the screen here. But there's kind of three sections. Oh yeah, fantastic. There's three sections of the place of the dead. The bottom one is Tartarus. It's not necessarily broken up this way, but the there are these sections. So that's where the place where the fallen angels or demons are imprisoned. Then you have Hades. And sometimes Hades is referred to as like the general place of the dead, like this whole thing is, the, is Hades. But most times it's talking about where the unrighteous dead go, what we might call hell, where the rich man is. And then you have Abraham's side or Abraham's bosom or a paradise where the righteous dead go. And that's where Lazarus is. So to be clear... Let me just be clear. Jesus doesn't intend by this parable to give you a clear picture of the afterlife. That's not what parables do. But it's important for us to know the context of Jesus' day to understand what he's building off of. Just like when Jesus talks about the Good Samaritan, the parable of Good Samaritan that you might be familiar with. He talks about, he's using the relationship between Samaritans and Jews, and he's building off of that. So rather, Jesus' purpose here in the parable, though, is to show us the reversal of God's economy. See, most of us, like people in Jesus' day, assume that you're blessed by God when you have a lot of earthly stuff. Like, think about it. 
Hashtag blessed. Right? You're like on the beach in Cancun. All we do is we see your feet and we see the waters and it's like hashtag blessed. Right? Or you have a nice meal out. Right? I remember going to dinner recently with my wife and the couple next to us, as soon as their food came out, both grabbed their phones and took pictures. And they might do hashtag blessed. Or you get a new house, hashtag blessed. You get a new car, hashtag blessed. Right? We assume that those people who are blessed by God are the people who have a lot of stuff. And in Jesus' day, it was the same way. So they assumed that when the rich man died, he was hashtag blessed so that when he dies, he's going to be with God. That's why disciples in other places go, well, like if rich people can't go to heaven or be in the kingdom of God, like what is going to happen to us? We have nothing. And so they would have expected that the rich man would have went there and Lazarus would have went to Hades. But what happens is Jesus turns it on its head. And in God's economy, the truly rich are those who are rich in God's eyes, despite what you and I see with ours. So Jesus says, you're looking right past the richest person in God's economy. See, the richest people you and I may ever interact with will have little homes, but big faith. The richest people you and I may ever know are the people who have busted up cars, but they have souped up relationships with God. Some of the richest people you might ever see, and they might be the hardest for you to look at, but in God's eyes, they're some of the most beautiful people on this planet. So it can't be emphasized enough that the richest man in the town's economy looked past the richest man in God's economy every day. See, the richest people you and I know may may be the people you and I look past the most. And you and I just need eyes to see it. There's brothers and sisters at Liberty Northeast, and I'm sure there's, like there is here, whose earthly status isn't anything to write home about, but whose heavenly status would just blow you away. I know old ladies who have prayer lives who would just like knock the socks off of your prayer life. Just destroy. They would crush my prayer life. I know single moms who know scripture like the back of their hands better than I do. And I know couples living paycheck to paycheck who depend on God and just like kick my butt in generosity. Old ladies, single moms, low-income couples who are little in the world's eyes are giants in the eyes of Jesus. And that may be your experience here. Like you may feel like you have nothing and all you're doing is clinging to God. And God wants you to know, I see you. I see you. And one day, they'll all see it too. And so we turn, then turn to the revelation from God's economy. Look at verse 24, verse 30. And he called out, this is Lazarus, uh, sorry, the rich man calling out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am anguished in this flame. But Abraham said, child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things, but now he's comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able. 
and none may cross from there to us. And he said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house, for I have five brothers, so that he may warn them, lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham. But if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. God's economy ultimately reveals you eventually get what you want. The rich man, think about this. The rich man is in Hades, but his attitude reveals a lot about him. He still sees himself as Lazarus's superior. Did you catch that? He still thinks he can boss Lazarus around. Hey, Father Abraham, send Lazarus over here to give me a cup of water. Hey, send Lazarus to tell my brothers. There's no repentance. There's no remorse. He sees the chasm. He experiences the flame. He experiences the thirst, but he's convinced it's a mistake. And he and Lazarus are actually in the wrong sections of the afterlife. See, in Scripture, fire is this great revealer. And the fire of of Hades reveals that the rich man got what he always wanted. By relying on his own strength and his resources, he showed he wanted life without God before death. So he got what he wanted after death. Life without God. See, if you want life without God, God will allow you to pursue those things other than Him. He'll allow you to dedicate your whole life to those things and those things will become idols in your life and the Bible ultimately says that is sin. And even though He'll allow you to get what you want in this life, He'll also allow you to experience the consequences of dedicating your life to those things. Sometimes in this life, but definitely in the next. Why will he allow that? Because it's what you want it. And this is true for money, but it's also true for other things. For instance, if you dedicate your life to work, and that becomes your God, you'll never get the rest you need. You'll never get the emotional, spiritual, physical rest. And you'll become exhausted. Because the thirst that you, that you want quenched can't be satisfied with more work. Like, isn't that what we do? We work really hard, we beat ourselves up, and we get exhausted, and we go, hey, why don't we just double down on more work? Why don't I just answer some more emails? Why don't I just wake up earlier and get started earlier on my work? And then I won't be exhausted. Hey, how about I don't take a Sabbath? How, you know, like, how about I don't come to church on Sundays? Instead, let me just work more. And then I'm like, why am I exhausted? I don't know. So you never get the rest you need. So in life after death, you get eternity without rest. And you get what you wanted. Or if you dedicate your life to earning your kids love, you'll run around life tossing nuggets in the back seat, anxious to please them and give them whatever will make them happy. And then you'll never experience satisfaction because let's face it, 
Kids are never satisfied. What made them happy yesterday doesn't make them happy today. Right? Love peanut butter and jelly yesterday, hate it today. Nothing has changed except that the sun went down and came back up once. <coughs> Excuse me. And in life after death, you'll never experience the satisfaction of the stability that comes when you actually dedicate your life to God's love, not your kids' love. And why we get that afterlife and in death? Because it's what you wanted. So if you want money and you want wealth and you dedicate your life to it, what's going to happen is you'll be consumed with greed. And the fact of the matter is enough will never be enough. And it can be taken away at any moment. Like, hasn't COVID taught us anything? Like, it could be gone in a moment. Like, a year ago, not to complain about gas prices again, we were paying like $2 for gas, and now we're paying like 30 a gallon. All right, it's a little extreme. But you get what I'm saying? Like, it could be gone. And enough will never be enough. And so you have this thirst that can never be quenched because money will never fulfill you in the ways that you think and you'll double down on money and you'll, you'll try to get more of it and you'll find out you're still not getting enough because enough is never enough and you'll end up leaving, feeling empty and in life after death, you'll be like the rich man left with nothing and still thirsty. Why? Because you got what you wanted. So whatever it is, you eventually get what you want. You want life without God, you get life without God. If you want life with God, you'll get God. And Jesus wants you to realize that, wants me to realize that. So the truly lost aren't those who struggle with circumstance and sin in this life, but rely on God's help. Who's more lost? Is it the hiker who realizes he's lost and is trying to find a way out and asking for help to get out? Or is it the hiker who keeps on going, doesn't realize he's lost, and just keeps going deeper and deeper into the darkness of the woods? See, the truly lost are those who don't realize they're lost. And Jesus is saying, hello, guys, wake up. You're lost. Realize it. And the rich man in life didn't realize he was lost. And in his love of money and his lack of generosity, he walked further and further into his lostness. But Lazarus, by his name, reveals he knew he was lost and he relied on God's help. All of us are lost in the darkness of, and the dark woods of sin and death. And we'll all continue to walk further and further into the darkness away from God, and we'll end up just like the rich man unless someone shows us the way out. And so verse 31, he said to him, this is Abraham saying to the rich man, if they do not hear most in the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. What's Jesus getting at here? He says, if you get what you want and you reject me, it won't matter if I rise from the dead. You'll reject me anyway. See, if you're not convinced of Jesus now, then you won't be convinced of him then. doesn't matter if you see the flames, you see the chasm, you're experiencing thirst, it won't matter. You'll think it's a mistake. And the real Lazarus of this parable is not you or me. Like if you think you're reading this parable, you're hearing this parable, and like, well, thank God I'm Lazarus. You're reading it wrong. Because the real Lazarus is Jesus. Jesus, the son of God who left all of his wealth, he left his throne to come from heaven to earth 
humbled himself, perfectly relied on God the Father for his help. And he was crucified outside the gates. And those who rejected him walked past him like he didn't exist. Some even mocked him as he hung there with his body covered in sores for your sins and mine. And he, like Lazarus, he also descended to the dead. He also went to paradise and he stood by Abraham's side, but then God raised him from the dead so that he can offer a way out for those who are lost in their sin and need a way out. Jesus went deep into the woods of sin and death and he shows us the way out and he swaps places with us. So instead of getting the consequences of what we wanted, he got those consequences. We get the consequences of what he wanted when we put our faith and trust in him. We get life with God. See, the only way you're not going to get the consequences that you wanted or the life you wanted is if you get the life Jesus wanted. The only way to get that is to put your faith and trust in Jesus. And so that when God looks at you, he sees Jesus and he gets, Jesus gets treated like the unnamed rich man and you get the name Lazarus. You become the one God helps. So you and I can now live a life of generosity in God's economy, a life of generosity with this deep, affectionate, intimate love of God flowing through our veins And with our eyes, we can see now things and people the way Jesus sees them. When we understand the gospel, we understand what Jesus has done for us, then we can have this deep relationship with God and have a life dependent on him rather than a life without him. And so my challenge to you as we close today is to take an audit of your life. Yes, that was intentional money language. Take an audit of your life. Everybody following? All right, let's go. But ask yourself, Am I living like someone in God's economy? Am I cons- have I considered the spiritual or kingdom significance of my giving? Am I sacrificially and cheerfully giving? Go to lunch today and, and sit down and, and take, take stock of your giving. Talk to your spouse on the way home and say, hey, are we giving what we should be giving? Are we, are we being faithful to Jesus? But look at your budget. Take more than you think you can give away first and then budget with the rest. Young people, even if you're not making much, even if you're like making, like you're working at Chick-fil-A and all you know like is you constantly say my pleasure to everyone when they thank you for something, like start putting 10% away now, like giving 10% away now. Because trust any of us here, the more money you make, the harder it is to give it away. It was a lot easier when I made a lot less. Because the check just didn't, it doesn't look as big. <laughs> but are you putting your head down like I did when I have opportunities for generosity? Or like when the offering plate comes by? But pray and think, who are you walking past every day or looking past every day who might be the greatest in the kingdom of God? You might walk past that person every Sunday. Stop and talk to them and get to know them and, and love them well. But ultimately ask yourself this. What will life after death reveal about me? When it's revealed that I got what I wanted, what will be that thing? Will it be that I relied on myself and my resources or that I relied on God and Jesus through a life of generosity? What will 
life after death, reveal about me. God's economy under Jesus is different. It changes the way we use our resources, especially our financial ones, and also reverses the way we see things and people in this life. And in the end, it reveals that we, what we really want, whether life on our own or life with Jesus. Let's pray. If you're here today, you're not a follower of Jesus, I just want to give you a moment if you want to just talk to God silently and just ask forgiveness for not understanding his generosity and what he's done for you in Jesus. Just ask God to forgive you. And ask God to just make the generosity of Jesus clear to you and that you will live it out. Just say, God, I'm sorry. I've messed up. I thank you for what you've done for me in Jesus. Help me to live a life of generosity. And Father, for the rest of us, we pray that we would be generous people, that we'd understand what Jesus has done for us and live differently in your economy. I thank you for everyone here today. I thank you for Liberty Harrisburg. I pray that you bless them, that they would, be, uh, they would just blow holes in the gates of hell with their giving, with their mercy, with their love, with their worship. We pray you bless Pastor Matt. You bless the elders. You watch over them. You care for them as they guard and watch and protect your sheep. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Liberty Church. To learn more about our church or to listen to previous recordings, visit www.LibertyHarrisburg.org.